Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Unpoly Podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, a recap of the first week back of the Ontario Legislature, featuring growing concern about whether the government is spending enough in our health care system. We'll speak with Peter Weltman from Ontario's Financial Accountability Office about plans versus reality. Then, the Premier's office gets involved in the race for Speaker of the Legislature, and the result gets nasty. And how strong will Toronto and Ottawa mayors really be? I'm joining today from the Association of Municipalities of Ontario's conference in Ottawa, so we'll take a quick look at Ontario's municipal elections in the fall. It's Tuesday, August 16th, 2022, so let's get to it. John Michael, there you are in Ottawa, where I'll be joining you tomorrow for the AMO, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario Conference. But, um, you know, I haven't seen you in a few weeks uh, since our last podcast, so I think the first and most appropriate question would be, how desperately have you missed me? Uh, Terribly. My words cannot express my longing for you, Steve. (laughs) Well, try. I think it's incumbent upon you to try a little bit. Well, you know, we we took some time off there uh, after the election uh, and uh, things settled down, but we are back both because of the AMO conference and because, of course, the legislature returned. But you've taken some time off. I managed to get some time off last week. We're both uh, a bit more tanned, a bit more relaxed. And let's get down to business then. It is, um, well, it's pretty unusual for the Legislative Assembly to be sitting in August. They usually don't do that. They usually take a bit of a summer break. So let's start there. Um, Why is that happening? Why are they sitting in August? (laughs) As you and our listeners probably remember, there is no actual budget in place for the province of Ontario uh, as you and I record this. Uh, The budget was introduced in the spring, but before it could be passed, the Premier called an election or asked the, le- the lieutenant governor to dissolve the legislature. She obliged. We had an election. The progressive conservatives won their majority and Doug Ford is still the premier. But we still don't have a budget. We still need one. So uh, MPPs were called back to a summer sitting to pass that budget. Okay, that explains that. Now, of course, every new session starts with a speech from the throne. We had one last week. Anything of particular interest there? You know, I would say there wasn't a ton that was groundbreaking in the speech from the throne if you were paying attention to the first budget or to the election campaign. You know, and that's not entirely surprising. The throne speech is supposed to be the government's agenda for the new sitting. You know, formally speaking, it's, it's the lieutenant governor calling the MPPs to the legislature to execute the government's agenda. Uh, So it's not surprising that the immediate priorities are the same things that they campaigned on just in May. And again, uh, let's touch on this again, even though you already have, because something else unusual happened. Budgets are normally introduced in the spring. As we know, the government introduced their last budget knowing full well it would not pass because the House was going to be dissolved right away and the election was going to happen. So, yes, they did reintroduce the budget last week. What was different between number one budget, which was introduced at the end of May, and number two budget, which they just introduced last week? Uh, A few things. There was a 5% increase for ODSP payments. This is uh, one of Ontario's uh, fundamental forms of uh, social welfare uh, that goes to people who live with disabilities. Uh, That 5% increase amounts to $58 more per month. Uh, It's up from uh, a 
$1,169. So we're talking about $1,200 a month maximum for uh, ODSP recipients. Uh, there is also uh, an improved deficit projection uh, that the province is uh, borrowing $1.1 billion uh, less to uh, fund government operations. And there was also a $225 million uh, spending announced for uh, parents to help kids catch up. This will be payments to help uh, parents pay for things like tutoring to help offset some of the learning loss from the school closures that we saw in both uh, 2020 and uh, 2021. Uh, and gosh, was there some 2022? <laughs> it's been such a long year already. I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do, of course, have to talk about health care here because thanks to COVID, thanks to summer vacations, uh, maybe thanks to some underspending by the government. We'll talk more about that in a bit. The health care system seems very shortchanged right now. The new health minister, Sylvia Jones, just sworn in at the end of June. How has she dealt with all of these accusations that the health care system is in crisis right now? Well, the uh, phrase that set off some alarm bells for a lot of people was uh, when the minister said that all options are on the table. Uh, she said, quote, I'm saying there's innovation and opportunity here in Ontario, and we will explore it. Uh, this uh, caused quite a storm because the government's critics immediately uh, shouted, you know, privatization, the, the uh, concern that uh, this government, uh, frankly, an accusation that conservative governments always uh, tend to face, uh, that this government is looking to uh, dismantle uh, publicly funded health care. But the minister and premier both insist that they are not about to bring in two-tier medicine. You're not going to have to use your credit card or your... your uh, debit card uh, to pay for healthcare services. They insist that uh, your OHIP card will uh, always be there to to pay for the services you need. One question that it's like kind of a finicky definitional thing, and but I just want to sort of flag it for our listeners. You know, it's, it's one thing to say that people won't have to use their OHIP card. It's another to say that people won't have the option of paying for services, even if OHIP is always there as a backstop. Uh, other countries that have uh, private and public care uh, systems that are, you know, mixed, uh, you know, the, the concern is that some, you know, wealthier citizens, uh, even if the public system always exists there as a backstop, some wealthier citizens are able to, you know, if you want to use the phrase jump the queue or something like that, uh, they can get access to faster or better service than uh, the public sector is able to deliver. Uh, now, here in Ontario, it has been illegal since I believe 1986 for uh, any uh, healthcare uh, uh, provider to provide the healthcare services as a, as a result of extra billing. That was a, a fight that David Peterson fought pretty early in his mandate. Um, but in theory, the province could re-legalize it if they wanted to, um, if they felt there was compelling reason to do so. That is going a bit further afield from where we are right now. But, uh, you know, for now, the premier and health minister say, you know, they are, are looking at private health care delivery. If it was done at all, would still be paid for by OHIP. Yeah. And that's an important distinction to make. And I'm not sure the minister was as clear as she needed to be the first time she was asked about all this. But just to sort of fill in the blanks here, here is the thinking behind that. There are all sorts of healthcare services that people in Ontario need, right? From the most sophisticated brain surgery to fixing a broken finger. And for whatever reason, we have developed a healthcare system that seems to think that all of those procedures need to be done in a hospital setting. And the reality is they don't. Hospitals are big. Hospitals are expensive. Actually, oftentimes the most expensive way to provide care for people. They are often, need we say it, dangerous places because they are filled with sick people and lots of viruses and superbugs. So the question becomes, 
Is it possible to provide medically necessary Medicare-insured services outside hospitals in safer, maybe more efficient, maybe more appropriate, maybe more community-based settings? To the best that I understand it, that's the question the government is considering right now. And, you know, this is an option that uh, the the previous government was talking about as well. Uh, you know, the I, I well remember uh, Deb Matthews, uh, health minister under uh, Kathleen Wynne, uh, talking about ways to uh, you know make more care available in more uh, efficient ways through the you know use of public funding of private services and. The liberals were also accused of trying to privatize public health care. You know, it gets so sticky because there are so many stakeholders in our public health care system. Uh, hospitals, uh, despite the uh, incredibly demanding workload, uh, they enjoy being the main hubs of the healthcare system because with that much money flowing through hospitals, that comes with staff and prestige and, and you know, importance in the community. Uh, Unions, to be blunt about it, uh, you know, enjoy the, the fact that uh, the the hospital setting means that hospital workers, uh, in particular, you know, we can talk about uh, nurses, but also uh, so many of the staff who work in the healthcare sectors, uh, they also tend to be unionized. Uh, doctors are not formally unionized, though the Ontario Medical Association sort of operates kind of like a union in some contexts. But you know. The healthcare system also relies to a very large extent, uh, including like basic things like family doctors are effectively privately delivered care and the services are paid for through the back office by OHIP. So, you know, it, it is a complicated issue that we can have a nuanced conversation about. We'll return to the issue of whether the government is spending enough on healthcare a bit later when we welcome the financial accountability officer who has just done a study on the province's healthcare spending. Yeah, I must say I'm always a little bit amused when I hear the word privatization thrown around willy-nilly by, uh, frankly, everybody. And I think it's probably, since we're discussing it, worth remembering that when former NDP leader and leader of Her Majesty's official opposition, Jack Layton, back in the day, had a hernia that needed treatment, he went to a private, for-profit hospital in the province of Ontario to have that work done because it was the best place to have it done. Uh, he used his OHIP card. OHIP paid for the whole thing. There were no additional expenditures. But rather than have it done in the hospital, he went to the specialized Shouldice Clinic, which does this kind of work better than anybody in the world, and got a very good outcome. So I think when the government talks about trying to take services out of hospitals and put them more in the community, that's the model they're looking at, not necessarily anybody being able to buy their way to the front of the line, which, of course, is completely inconsistent with single-tier healthcare in Canada. Okay. Enough said. Let's talk about the election for the Speaker of the Legislature, because they've just started the 43rd session of Parliament since 1867, and every new session starts with the election of a new Speaker. Ted Arnott from Wellington Halton Hills uh, had the job in the last Parliament, and by all accounts, did a pretty good job. But for whatever reason, the Premier's office wanted Arnott out and wanted Nina Tangri, a backbench, well, no, actually, she was in Cabinet, from Mississauga Streetsville, they wanted her to be the speaker instead. They dropped her from the cabinet. And again, I'm just going to speculate here, but I bet the call went something like, Nina, we're really sorry. We got to drop you from cabinet, but we'll back you in a race for speaker. What could go wrong? <laughs> Turns out, John Michael, plenty. That's right. Uh, the premier's office tried to uh, whip a vote effectively, both among its own uh, caucus, its own backbenchers, and uh, the NDP allege. Uh, it was also basically trying to uh, whip the opposition caucus. Uh, 
it seems like neither the opposition parties nor the government's own caucus took too kindly to that. Uh, the election for the House Speaker is a secret ballot, uh, and it looks like at least 20 progressive conservative backbenchers defied the Premier and the government House leader, that's Paul Calandra, uh, and voted for Arnott. Uh, so presumably did all or almost all of the opposition members. Uh, so are not one. He will be and is the Speaker of the House uh, for this uh, legislative session uh, until he doesn't want the job anymore or until the next election is called. Uh, and, the, you know, it's embarrassing for the Premier's office because if you're going to pick a fight like this in public, you probably wish you would win it. <laughs> one thing that I want to drill in on for a second here, you know, we talk about the, uh, the government trying to whip the NDP into line here. I, I think one thing that may have been happening, and again, I'm just going to engage in some very light speculation here, while the the ballots are secret for the speaker, uh, the nominations have to be done in public. And I think the government really, really wanted to keep the opposition from nominating any kind of alternative to Nina Tangri. And if the opposition had done that, there would only have been one candidate. And it wouldn't have mattered about keeping uh, votes in line. Uh, instead, uh, Arnott was nominated by uh, NDP MPP Catherine Fife and Liberal Lucie Collard in spite of what uh, the NDP allege are the government's uh, threatened retaliations. And when Arnott won, it was Fife and Collard who uh, ceremonially dragged him to the speaker's chair. So, Steve, there are plenty of examples uh, throughout uh, even just recent history of premier's offices intervening in speaker's elections. It almost never goes well for the premier of the day. Why do they keep doing it? They keep doing it because they never learn. <laughs> they're not apparently they're not students of history. And, and I, I found this whole thing astonishing as well, which is why I wrote a column about it. If anybody wants to read it, it's at TVO.org. But the fact is, this is hardly the first time that the premier's office has intervened, trying to put their thumb on the scale for a particular candidate and had the rest of the members of the legislature say, uh, no, we don't think so. We're going to do our own thing here. If you look into the last legislature, um, the Liberals, Dave Levac, who is the MPP from Brant, uh, he was victorious over Donna Cansfield, who was an MPP from Etobicoke. Uh, Cansfield put forward the notion that she could be the first female speaker ever. I think people thought that Levac would do a better job, and therefore he won, despite the fact that it was Premier McGinty's office that urged people to vote for Cansfield. Uh, in the speaker election before that, Steve Peters. Uh, was a cabinet minister from southwestern Ontario. He was dropped from cabinet, decided to run for speaker. Uh, I think the liberals and the premier's office, again, McGinty, were concerned that he would be a little bit too independent and maybe a little bit bitter about being dropped from cabinet. And therefore, they did not want him to be the speaker. But he won. Uh, the other backbenchers went and voted for Steve Peters, and he actually defeated Ted Arnott, who's currently got the job. We can go back again. Gary Carr was elected the speaker. Chris Stockwell was elected the speaker. They're both the former progressive conservative MPPs in Mike Harris's government. And uh, people, again, voted for them because they were seen as being very independent, whereas Premier Harris and his minions thought, eh, maybe too independent for our liking. The speaker has to be independent, right? The speaker needs to ensure that all members of the House have their rights respected, not just the government side. And trying to fix an election seems to me to be particularly dumb because in this case, Doug Ford had just won a majority government. He was at the start of a brand new term. Uh, you could say that his, his, his political power and, and currency uh, will never be higher in this term than right now. And suddenly you've got a situation where your own caucus thumbs its nose at you and says, screw you, 
this is the only secret ballot we're allowed as backbenchers, and so we're going to vote for who we want. Don't you tell us who to vote for. So as a result, the premier looks like he's lost control of as much as a quarter of his caucus already, which is not a great look for a brand new elected majority government premier of Ontario. So, okay, take us through the next bit of this. What's the effect of all of this? Well, we've mentioned some of the allegations of of retaliation against both uh, the opposition parties and the government caucus. Uh, House uh, government House leader Paul Calandra is uh, reputedly not happy about this outcome. Uh, Queens Park Briefing has reported that uh, international travel for Tory backbenchers has been cancelled. They are refusing going forward. They are refusing to allow parliamentary assistance to answer questions in question period. So uh, cabinet ministers have to work harder to be prepared and uh, parliamentary assistants lose some valuable uh, ice time in question period. That also suggests to me that it's not just backbenchers who may have, uh, who are suspected of voting for Arnott uh, if uh, cabinet ministers are also kind of implicitly being punished here. But that's uh, that's, that's another thing entirely. Um, the New Democrats uh, have uh, alleged a few different uh, forms of retaliation against them uh, because the NDP are the only uh, official opposition party in the legislature right now uh, in the previous House, they got all three deputy speaker slots, but uh, they are now going to get one. The Liberals will get one and the Progressive Conservatives uh, will get one. Um, we should also say that uh, Paul Calandra's office denies that the changes to uh, committee chairs or the deputy speaker or uh, anything else has to do with the results of the speaker's race. That is their uh, formal statement. They're saying it's entirely unrelated and that, uh, for example, giving the Liberals a, a seat as the deputy speaker is just a way of uh, being kinder to the third party in the legislature. Indulge me one more thing on this, and that is that it really was an inexplicable strategy from the beginning from the premier's office in the province of Ontario. You have to understand right after an election is over, some people have been dropped from cabinet and therefore they are not going to be happy and not going to be uh, amused to be told who to vote for. Some people who had hoped to get into cabinet didn't get into cabinet. So they're not going to be happy. And again, same thing. They're not going to be happy to have you tell them who to vote for. So this strategy seemed from the beginning to have no understanding of post-election human nature. And some of the people in that progressive conservative caucus who would be beneath the surface quite hostile to the premier's office at the moment. And therefore, You look at this, you look at history, you can't possibly be surprised that so many people at MPPs at Queen's Park just said, no, we're going to do our own thing here. No, and just to reiterate something you've already mentioned, I mean, this is one of the only chances that MPPs in certainly in the government caucus get to demonstrate their independence for the entire four year span of this government. And even if none of that stuff that you just mentioned about people being upset after the election, some people not making it into cabinet, I think for a lot of MPPs, there is also a sense of, you know what, like, this is the only thing we get to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't take this from us. And just the the f- simple fact of the premier's office endorsing a candidate would get some of their backs up. Maybe if some of this other stuff hadn't gone on, they they wouldn't necessarily have voted for Arnott. Maybe if you know some people didn't have some bruised feelings about getting dropped from cabinet, for example, Nina Tangri might be uh, the speaker. But I think a lot of people, you know, and you, you hear stories from the U.S. Senate all the time of of you know a senator gets a, a direction from the White House and says. 
you know what? I was going to vote for you, but just because you told me to, I'm not going <laughs> to. And I think some of that might have happened here, too. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing is, Arnott was actually doing a good job. And I think that there was a certain unfairness that many members of the legislature felt in being told to vote for somebody who had no experience at the job, who had never done the job before, who had, frankly, in her one previous term at Queens Park, never demonstrated that she had any particular facility for the job. And to vote for her over somebody who had already demonstrated over four years that he could do the job. And I know some people are saying this was a missed opportunity to give a woman and more pointedly, a woman of color, the opportunity to become the first in those categories, uh, the first woman of color to um, the first woman and the first woman of color uh, to have this important, prestigious job. Uh, But I think the, the notion of firing somebody who had done the job well was just a bit of a bridge, along with all the other things you've said, was just a bit bit of a bridge too far. All right. On uh, another topic, I know you will be joining me at the Association of Municipalities of Ontario conference here in Ottawa shortly, Steve. Uh, But let's get into some of the, uh, let's say, more newsworthy Ontario municipal stuff as we look ahead to the municipal elections in October. Uh, We've got, of course, got an important development last week with the government introducing the Strong Mayors Building Homes Act. Uh, This is an act introduced by the uh, Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, or rather I should say it is a bill introduced to the legislature by uh, Minister Clark. Uh, The bill would basically give uh, strong mayor powers or so-called strong mayor powers to uh, the mayor specifically of Toronto and Ottawa. Uh, The government does say that they would be looking to expand those powers to other uh, large Ontario cities in the future. But for now, they're going to pilot it with uh, Toronto and Ottawa to start. Now, let's take a bit of time uh, on this one, because this is nothing that Doug Ford campaigned on during the last election campaign. It really did come out of the blue post-election. So what's the thinking behind the new Strong Mayors Act? Well, you know, let's start with an obvious point here that in uh, certainly in Toronto, where I'm most familiar with the city council, you know, some city councillors get elected with, uh, you know, as little as 5000 votes. And the mayor of Toronto gets elected with 400,000 votes. And unlike a councillor who just represents a single ward, a single small part of the city, the mayor is elected from the city as a whole. Uh, and yet, at the moment, before this legislation is actually passed into law, uh, they just each have one vote on council. And, you know, the mayor has to, uh, you know, win or lose votes with just one vote. Uh, So this acknowledges or these changes would acknowledge that the mayor, uh, who is elected citywide, really might deserve more of a voice and more power in the process than a simple ward councillor. Now, specifically, the province says that the idea is to Uh, you know, in particular, get more housing built, but to really align municipal priorities with provincial priorities. So this uh, would give the mayor the power to uh, veto council decisions that might be, uh, you know, obstructions to getting more housing built uh, in their neighborhoods. Um, There was actually a recent example of that. I wrote about this for TVO.org in Toronto, where uh, a local ward councillor convinced a majority of his colleagues to uh, reduce the planning permissions for the areas around a ghost train station, right? Total breach with provincial policy. uh, And yet, uh, and the mayor, to his credit, voted against it. Uh, If he had had a veto, this is almost exactly the kind of scenario that you could imagine uh, these kind of strong mayor powers working. Again, I wrote about that for TVO.org and people can find that column uh, if they want to. Um, 
but the bill does three things, I would say, uh, three major things. Uh, two of them are veto powers. We already talked about potentially uh, vetoing any measures that conflict with provincial priorities. Uh, those priorities are not spelled out specifically in the law yet. They're going to be done through regulation. Uh, but we are told that they will include big transit building projects and housing construction Separately, the mayor is also being given a veto over council decisions in the budget process. And I want people to think of these two things separately because the veto in the budget process is much, much broader than the first one. The mayor gets to both write the first draft of the city's budget and he gets to veto any amendments that council tries to make to the budget. So he gets a very, very tight control over the final form of, uh, most Im- of the most important council decision every year. Uh, in both cases, the mayoral veto can be overridden if two-thirds of the council disagrees with the mayor. Okay, math is not my strong suit, but I think you said there were three things that the bill would do, and I think that's only two. So don't keep us in suspense here. Finish up. What's go- what else is going on? Man, I am out of shape. Uh, I needed to catch my breath there. It's been too long since we recorded a <laughs> podcast. Uh, the third thing is that this law would give the mayor the authority to hire the city's chief administrative officer, like the head of the municipal public service. Uh, in both Ottawa and Toronto, that position is called the city manager. And at the moment, the city manager answers to council as a whole. If and when this bill is signed into law, it would mean that the head of the municipal public service would answer directly to the mayor. And the mayor would also have the p- power to hire and fire uh, some other municipal officials, not all of them. Uh, and he would also have the power to reorganize the city's departments as he or she sees fit. Uh, the mayoral vetoes have gotten most of the discussion in the news coverage of this bill. But I think this part of the law, this ability to really uh, reorganize the public service and, and city departments, I think this would actually be uh, much more important uh, over time as we see this law go forward. Well, in in effect, you're giving the mayor of these two big cities the same power that the premier of Ontario or the prime minister of Canada has, and that is the right to select his or her own deputy minister, for lack of a better expression, the person who's going to be the head of the whole public service. My question is, or my next question is, I understand all of what you've said is exactly what this bill is about, but let's talk about what we haven't talked about. Uh, what's really going on here besides all of this? The notion that we need a strong mayor system to get more housing built. Is that really what this is all about? Or is that a, you know, is this a clever cover for something else? Well, you know, it it can be two things. And I think in this case, it is both. Um, You know, in theory, uh, a mayor with a veto could uh, overturn some of the the nimbyism that we see on uh, city council or city politics, not just in Toronto, but, uh, you know, across the province. Uh, I've already mentioned an example of that uh, from Toronto City Council recently. Um, But, you know, Doug Ford has never really liked the current setup of uh, municipal councils. And, you know, going back to when his brother Rob was mayor and then Doug Ford was a, a rookie city councillor for Ward 2. We know that Doug Ford has business interests in Chicago uh, where they have a stronger mayor. Uh, <laughs> here, municipal experts and pedants will tell you it's not a strong mayor system per se. But for our purposes, I think it's clear that Doug Ford thinks Toronto's mayor should have more of the powers that you see in other U.S. cities. So, you know, it's no surprise. I, I mean, it is surprising in the sense that he didn't campaign on it, but it's not hugely surprising that uh, he is moving forward on this because he has said repeatedly in public in the past that he thinks that this is a direction that Ontario municipalities should go and specifically Toronto. And while we are on the topic of municipalities, let me now do a graceful segue into where I am recording from right now, Ottawa. 
Uh, I am at the annual conference of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. You are, as we've mentioned, coming tomorrow. Uh, what do you like about this conference, Steve? Well, the first thing I like about it is that it's happening. Uh, we all have to remember that uh, because of COVID-19, uh, these folks have not got together in, I guess, about three years. And there are 444 municipalities in the province of Ontario. They are all represented here, except for one. The city of Toronto, the capital city, uh, left AMO many years ago, and they are not represented here. But everybody else is. And this has really been the singular most important opportunity for local politicians for all over the province to gather, to compare best practices, to meet one another, uh, to have at um, cabinet ministers uh, who they you know, otherwise don't get a chance to see or hear from very often, potentially. So th this is an important opportunity. And the fact that they're all able to gather and do that and make all that happen is a real boon to them. Now, tomorrow, on Wednesday, I'm going to be moderating a discussion with Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey and two well-known economists, Armin Yalnesian and Mike Moffat. And, um, you know, we're obviously going to talk about the province's finances and other priorities going forward. How about you? What have you got on your plate? Uh, I am going to be moderating the Minister's Forum. Uh, it is sometimes colloquially referred to as the bear pit. Uh, this is where cabinet ministers get peppered with questions from municipal elected officials. That's mayors, wardens, councillors, and reeves from all over Ontario. Uh, in prior years before COVID, it was reliably uh, pretty feisty. And I am both excited to see what happens and uh, also mildly terrified about it, since this is my first time doing it uh, live and in person. Um, but I do definitely just want to reiterate something you, you mentioned there, because I, I do think it's important, right? You and I both try reasonably hard to push the spotlight of our uh, news coverage outside of the GTA in Ottawa, because, you know, it's a big old province, and at TVO, we, we do try to cover all of it. And the AMO conference is just one of the ways we do that. You know, smaller municipalities uh, make up uh, most of the municipalities in Ontario, albeit not the ones with the most people in Ontario. Um, and, you know, they don't get their concerns heard in the same way that big cities do. And, you know, that is natural and understandable, I think. But once a year for a few days, we get to hear these, these concerns and they are, they are just different from the concerns of big cities. I think just while we're on the issue of municipal politicians, uh, we might take this moment just to point out the fact that um, Andrea Horvath has left Queen's Park. Um, she has made it her intention uh, she has announced her intention, rather, to uh, resign her seat as an, the MPP for Hamilton Centre. And, of course, she's already stepped down as the leader of the opposition and the leader of the NDP. She's running for mayor of Hamilton. And I know that it's one of the laws in the province of Ontario that I'm obliged to mention something about my hometown as often as I possibly can. Uh, this is one of those occasions, John Michael, where I actually have good cause to do it because the Hamilton mayor's race between Andrea Horvath and the former mayor, Bob Bratina, who was the mayor two mayors ago, and a guy named Keenan Loomis, who's the former head of the uh, Chamber of Commerce in Hamilton, that may be the best mayor's race anywhere in the province of Ontario. So with not that much time left until uh, Municipal Election Day, which is October 24th, uh, it's starting to heat up. No, you're right. It, it, Hamilton is going to be really interesting. And uh, just on August 19th is the date for nominations to close. Uh, there is still room for us to be surprised. There are some reports that Stephen Del Duca, who, of course, was the uh, liberal leader in the last election and, and was defeated, uh, he would be running to replace outgoing Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua. And, uh, you know, so you could very well see, uh, well, actually, 
if Patrick Brown is in fact running for a re-election in Brampton, that's like three former party leaders uh, from Queens Park, uh, all running for mayor's seats uh, in this election. And, uh, you know, they might not be the last ones we hear from. You know, the last uh, election in 2018, of course, a bunch of defeated liberals uh, found their way back into municipal offices. So, you know, these things happen. It's, you know, it's not a bad gig to be a councillor or a mayor relative to being a backbencher, especially like an opposition backbencher at Queen's Park. There is something about being at a different level of government and quote unquote coming home. Uh, never mind all the... Tr- all the travel you're now not going to have to do. And I think now about a guy like Paul Lefebvre, who, is, um, who was uh, the, uh, one of the MPs in the Sudbury area, uh, who's now running for mayor of Sudbury. And now he doesn't have to fly every week from Sudbury to Toronto and then Toronto to Ottawa to go do his job. He's running for mayor of Sudbury. Uh, you know, same thing with Andrea Horvath. She'll no longer be beating a path along the QEW if she, in fact, wins as mayor of Hamilton. Uh, she'll be able to stay home and do her job uh, from the Steel City. And on and on and on. There were, you're quite right, four years ago, there were a lot of people who got elected, uh, I think, of Bill Morrow up in Thunder Bay, who used to make the trek from Thunder Bay to Queen's Park, where he was a cabinet minister in Kathleen Wynne's government. Then he became the mayor of Thunder Bay and um, travels a lot better when you only have to go to home to City Hall. So, yeah, there's something more civilized about uh, municipal affairs, less complicated, more hands-on, and seems to be very attractive uh, for many people uh, who once held what they call jobs at senior levels of government and now prefer to come home. Now, we've hinted at this earlier in our conversation that we wanted to hear from the Financial Accountability Officer as it relates to some of the reports he just brought out. So let's do that now. Joining us now, Peter Weltman, the Financial Accountability Officer for the province of Ontario. Peter, it's good to have you back on our podcast. How are you managing? I'm doing pretty well, Steve. It's nice to be back on the podcast. Excellent. Your organization just published three reports on how the ministries of education, long-term care, and health have spent their money. So let's focus on health for a moment because uh, it's been so much in the news lately. And also, I I guess the most significant takeaway from your report was that the province is actually underspending what it already had budgeted for health. Explain, if you would, how you got to that conclusion. So we do this report that we call the Expenditure Monitor. We put it out four times a year, every quarter. And what we do is we look at the government's actual spend for that particular quarter in question. The one that we did recently was for the final quarter of the fiscal year, Q4. And what that does is that uh, looks at all of the spending that's been recorded in the government's accounting system up until April 22nd, which is their cutoff date for the end of the year. And when we look at that spending, we then compare it to what the government had planned to spend for that year, for which the government got legal authority. So when they put their planned spending number forward to the legislature and the legislature approves it, the government's allowed to spend up to that amount of money. The other thing the report does is it compares spending to the previous year for the same time period. So while the government did underspend its planned spending for health for this fiscal year, it did spend more, it spent $4.3 billion more on health this closing fiscal year than it did last year. So there are, you know, lots of different pieces to this report. I think you know how the opposition parties have reacted to uh, your most recent report. Is it fair for uh, them or for even the public to characterize this as uh, effectively spending money that was left on the table? 
So I think it's important for people to recognize that when a government is authorized to spend money, they cannot spend more money than what they've been authorized to spend by law. So the government's never going to spend the absolute full allocation. Uh, that's number one. Normally it leaves about 2 to 2.5% two of the total budget on the table, as it were, and that's a pretty normal thing. What we saw in the past two years is that money that was left over was much higher than, we've, than that 2.5%. It was about 39 last year and about 5.4 the previous year. And I would attribute that to the fact that it was very difficult to do that sort of planning within COVID. I mean, from our side, we've had a heck of a time trying to forecast the economy. It's been up and down like a yo-yo, effectively. So it's been a tricky time. And I think going forward, if we see things return to that 2 to 2.5%, two I wouldn't be too, too upset about it, but if, if, if we're continuing to see a lot of the, the underspend, if you will, I'd be more, you know, I would want to take a little closer look at it. I think the other thing, too, to remember is that underspending is not, we don't consider it, I don't consider it a cut. A cut would be something like changing the education program to have more kids in the classroom and therefore fewer teachers. And that would be a cut to the spending. That's a change in the terms and conditions of a program. But underspending a planned amount, to me, is not a program cut. Well, there's another guy named Peter who watches the province's finances pretty carefully. That would be the finance minister, Peter Bethlen-Falvey. And it's almost become a bit of a, um, well, a tradition for him to say, I thank Peter Weltman for his report. And then in the next breath, say... The financial accountability officer's numbers are not the audited numbers. The financial accountability officer has access uh, to a point in time information, does not have access to all the expenditures because they happen sometimes after uh, that uh, his report comes out. What do you, when he says that kind of thing, what do you think? Well... There are two things, I think. One is, this is never pretended, to, it's, it's up to date as to the cutoff point. There's always gonna be a cutoff point, and we're very clear about that. In this Q4 report, we've said, this is as of April 22nd, and there might be some changes to be made um, to the year-end accounting figures uh, between now and the time public accounts comes up. So we're clear about that as well. In terms of the comment about accuracy, I would say that's a little bit interesting because these are the government's numbers. They give us the data dump from their accounting system. It is their number. So if there's an accuracy discussion, it's not a discussion that we are party to. And we'll leave it at that. I won't get any more, more into that than, than, than what I've said. The Premier at a press conference last Friday gave a, a lengthy laundry list of all of the new things that his government is doing on health care, uh, despite the finding that there was an underspending. What do you make of that? I mean, it, it, does the government have a point when it tries to defend itself from these charges? I find it interesting that there's somehow the narrative has come around to this whole underspending thing. Um, really, the point that I see from the report is, is to be able to understand you know, how much was voted or how much was approved by the legislature at the beginning of the year, how much more was approved by the legislature over the course of the year, and where the government chose to move that money. So if they had a certain amount of money in one area, did they move it to a different area? And it does reveal a lot about what happened over the course of the year. Um, in the case of something like, you know, healthcare underspend, there are certainly some areas, you know, that folks might want to ask questions about. And that's really the purpose of this report, is we don't get into, you know, we don't get into the, the why, we just get into the what. And the idea is to, to, to raise questions that can be asked of the government. So maybe when the Premier does this, 
maybe he's anticipating questions. I'm not sure. Well, let me ask you a question about that then, because the you, you know that when you put the press release out saying that the government has underspent its money that was allocated for health care, immediately the opposition MPPs piled on by saying things like that this was callous, that this was dangerous. And I think we really need to give our listeners a very accurate indication about which adjectives are appropriate to use in this case. Now, reminding everybody, you're a nonpartisan independent officer of the legislature. You're not, you know, aligned with any political party. If the opposition says things like callous and dangerous in terms of its takeaway, is that a fair characterization? One thing about being a budget officer is that you know that folks are going to take the work you do and characterize it in a way that they choose. I mean, as a, you know, it is a free country. We do have free speech here. They're allowed to do those sorts of things. Um, what I've said is that I don't agree that the underspend is a program cut. Um, but ultimately, what I would like to see is, and I hope for, some you know forum for more reasoned debate on these sorts of things. There are a lot of important questions that need to be asked about the allocation of funds and why certain you know programs may have been underspent, maybe others were overspent. Um, and Such as what? What's well, a question you want asked? So I think, you know, there's a question, for example, we, we point out in our report, we've seen lower spending this year than last year on the operation of hospitals, $1.2 billion lower. And, you know, I think it's pretty common as to what's going on with hospitals right now and the sort of situation they're in. And, I'd, you know, I'd want to see, you know, what does that mean? What is the operation of hospitals? Why was it less? Uh, we do know in that, that one8 underspend for this year overall, a lot of the money was moved from COVID programs because that was not needed anymore to the same degree as the, bud as the government had, had forecast earlier in the year. But these shouldn't be my questions to answer. I'm not the government. We aren't the government. We're 20 people. We're a little smaller than the government. We put the numbers out there. And the ministers and the deputies, et cetera, should there, there, you know, be nice to see a forum where they could be asked these questions in you know, maybe some sort of a committee forum, and they could provide answers. Let me do one more fast follow-up with you, which is to say, again, Peter Bethlen-Falvey, the finance minister, sometimes says, okay, but Weltman's numbers are quote-unquote unaudited. Do you take from that that it is an attempt by him to undermine the seriousness or accuracy of your report? I don't, actually. We say it ourselves in our report. They're unaudited. There could be changes to come, as I've mentioned. So during the year, a quarterly report is always going to be unaudited because the government doesn't publish audited quarterly financial reports. Um, they do provide a quarterly, what they call the quarterly update, which is a change or to their forecast and a change to their planned spending. But they don't actually provide an actual, here's what got spent in the last quarter and here's where the money was moved to. That's what we do. So that, you know, when he says unaudited, he's absolutely right. These are unaudited and we're careful to mention that because there might be a few big changes. We don't know, but there might be some changes that happen between the time our report is published and the time that the public accounts are finalized. And, of course, the person who does the audits of government numbers is, is the Auditor General, not the Financial Accountability Officer. It's, it's two different roles uh, in, in the public sector. Yes, completely different. We look forward. We do projections. We do forecasts. And the Auditor General does audits as to what has already happened. In the report's deck, 
there are, and you talked about wanting to have a bit more of a, a, a fulsome debate about what, where the allocations were. So, you know, let's let's dig in on this a little bit. You already mentioned that uh, there were some decreases to hospital operations. Uh, your deck also points out that there were uh, decreases for smaller hospital projects, uh, digital health, including uh, 85% cut to online therapy services, uh, which the CBC reported on. The money instead went to uh, other areas of healthcare, like payments to physicians, drug programs, mental health, uh, larger hospital projects, and assistive devices. Is there a theme here that you see? You know, what what do you make from these adjustments to the spending that they made? Uh, so it's hard. It's hard for me to to, to make a lot of it. I think. Um uh, a couple of things in terms of things like payments to physicians being up over the previous year. So we know that physician visits were way down at the beginning of COVID. So we would have so we saw payments to the physicians being way down that year, and now they're kind of back up a little bit compared to that year. So that was what I would make of that particular one. In ther- terms of things like hospital projects, these are infrastructure projects, and infrastructure projects almost almost by definition. I want to be careful because I'm sure some folks won't agree with this, but they almost by definition are not going to be always on time. And uh, so if things slip, uh, meaning that they're delayed, which is which is common and in COVID times was even more common. So there are funds that they expected to spend that aren't gonna be needed in that fiscal year. They'll be spent in the following fiscal year. And there may have been other projects that were moving along more rapidly. So it's natural to move funds from one project to another if that's where the, the, the funds are needed. That's Peter Weltman, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. As always, Peter, we thank you for your time. Thank you very much. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter. Uh, normally drops on the same day as the podcast. This week, it's going to be Thursday due to uh, events beyond our control. You can subscribe to that newsletter at tvo.org slash newsletters. And we got a funny one this week, so don't anybody miss that. TVO.org slash newsletters. Here now, my quote of the week in JMM. I've been watching premiers hold news conferences in and around Queen's Park and the province for about 40 years. I have never, and I mean never, ever, ever (laughs) seen this before. Have a listen. It's coming from the health sector. (laughs) Holy Christ. I just swallowed a bee. Holy Christ, I knew that little bugger. Oh. Drown him, drown him. I'm good, he's down here buzzing around right now. He has a lot of, he has a lot of real estate. Holy Christ, he's, he's wedged in my throat. Sorry, guys. A little bugger got away in there. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm okay, he's buzzing in there. Man, he went right down the hatch. Okay, guys. Okay, you got to hand it to him. It's got to be pretty scary when you're in the middle of trying to answer reporters' questions to swallow a bee. So, you know, props to the premier. He did continue on. He did make light of it. Uh, He tried to cough the bee up. It wouldn't happen. He tried to wash it down with water. That wouldn't happen either. He knew it would be clipped all over the media. He had fun with it. And I just remember thinking, I remember the movie Aquila and the Bee. Well, now we've got a sequel. It's called Doug Ford and the Bee, coming to a press conference near you. And uh, Premier Ford gets the Daily Double, I guess, uh, this week. My quote of the week is also from the Premier. Uh, Here's how he started off the AMO conference on Monday here in Ottawa. Uh, He had to make light of the bee thing. Here he is. Boy, what what a warm, warm welcome. And (coughs) 
<laughs> Hold on. Oh. There, I finally got him. You know, he's been, <laughs> he's been, he's been hanging around for a while. He's twice the size that he came in at, I'm telling you. You can't see it, but Ford is actually uh, holding a little plastic bee that he sort of mimed coughing up into his hand. Uh, it was it was a really nice moment of, of the premier trying to, you know, have a bit of fun with the audience and the, the audience clearly loved it. Uh, we also have to note with interest that a former premier of Ontario also weighed in on this whole matter. Uh, Bob Ray on Twitter got into the fun by saying, if it had been me in the 90s, the headline would have been Ray Savage's B in unprovoked attack, honey production drops. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Ambassador. Well, that's the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. We're going to take another short break, but just wanted to come back to give you the skinny on developments this summer. Check your inbox and we'll be back there with another podcast edition before you know it. This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb, edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Sharonier Tajbidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Remember, people, COVID isn't over yet, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve, and I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.